It is a privilege to welcome Dr. Ron Sider to our chapel. He's not a stranger to Acadia Divinity College, having participated faithfully in the Doctor of Ministry program and in other ways through the years. I first came to know Ron through the writing, reading his his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, which for many of us, that would have been a book that when we think of Ron Sider, that's one of the first things that comes to our mind. But there are many other things that come to mind that perhaps some of you are not as familiar with. Uh, I note from um, the brief biography that I was able to um, glean that he, in 2014 he received the William Sloan Coffin Award uh, for Peace and Justice from Yale Divinity School. He has lectured, uh, participated in various um, lectureship series and taught um, in many colleges and universities around the world, which includes Yale, Harvard, Princeton, and Oxford, and Acadia Divinity College. I would just throw that. <laughs> uh, Ron Sider is the senior distinguished professor of theology, holistic ministry, and public policy at Palmer Theological Seminary and President Emeritus of Evangelicals for Social Action. He has spoken on more than six continents, published more than 30 books, and scores of articles. He's been named one of the 12 most influential persons in the field of religion in the United States. And I mentioned his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, was recognized by Christianity Today as one of the top 100 most influential religious books of the 20th century. It's an honor to welcome you, uh, Dr. Sider, to Acadia Divinity College. Thank you for accepting the invitation to teach in our Doctor of Ministry program and also in the midst of a very busy week to accept the invitation to preach at the chapel. Uh, God bless you as you come to preach and I'd like to pray for you as you come. In the tradition of the African Association of Nova Scotia, uh, they would say, um, you preach and we will help you by being attentive and engaging with you and together we will look to the Lord to hear from him. So let's pray for Dr. Sider. We're, gra- we're grateful, Lord, for the servant that you have given to us this particular week and at this time in this chapel. We believe that through him we will hear from you. We pray that you'll give him the sense of your presence and the power of your spirit as he brings your word to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As an Ontario farm boy, I'm always glad to uh, get back uh, to Canada. This morning, um, I want to think with you um, on the topic, the scandal of the evangelical conscience, or if you like, uh, living like hell on the way to heaven. (laughs) I have to say with a lot of sadness that when I talk to younger people um, these days, I have to say that my generation of Christians has failed you. We have simply failed to offer younger generations of Christians an attractive 
faithful example of Christian living. The, po- the policy, the, uh, the, the polling data is just overwhelmingly clear and painful. Whether the issue is divorce or materialism or sexual promiscuity or racism or physical abuse in marriage, the polling data point to widespread, blatant disobedience of clear biblical demands on the part of the people who allegedly are evangelical, born-again Christians. The statistics are devastating. In a national survey, George Barna found that the percentage of born-again Christians who had experienced divorce was slightly higher, 26%, than that of non-Christians. In Barna's polls since that time, that was the 1990s, the numbers have remained about the same. Barna also found in one study that 90% of all divorced born-again folk had divorced after they were born again, or at least after they accepted Christ. Barna makes a distinction between born-again Christians and evangelicals. Barna classifies the born-again folk as all who say they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that's still important in their life and also indicate that they believe that when they die, they will go to heaven because they've confessed their sins and accepted Christ as their Savior. And his polls, anywhere from 35 to 43% of the total U.S. population, I'm sorry, I don't have Canadian data, but... uh, uh, 35 to 43% of the U.S. population meet this criteria for being born again. Barna limits the term evangelical to a much smaller group, about 7 or 8% of the U.S. population, and in addition to the criteria for being born again, evangelicals must agree with several other things. Jesus lived a sinful life. Eternal salvation is only through grace, not works. Christians have a personal responsibility to uh, evangelize non-Christians. Satan exists. And obviously this definition identifies a much more theologically um, constricted uh, group of Christians. What's the divorce rate among this smaller group of evangelicals? Well, according to his polling, the same as the national average. According to a poll that he did, 25% of evangelicals, just like 25% of the total population, have experienced divorce. Professor Brad Wilcox is a Princeton-trained Christian sociologist, um, studies family issues, and he points out that the divorce rates are higher in the southern United States, where conservative Protestants, calling themselves evangelicals, make up a higher percentage of the population than elsewhere. Or switch to the issue of materialism in the poor. John and Sylvia Ronsvall have been carefully analyzing (coughs) the giving patterns of U.S. Christians for about four decades. And in their annual State of Christian Giving, um, they provide a very careful assessment of what Christians are giving. And over the last 40 years, of course, (coughs) uh, U.S. Christians have gained significantly in their annual income. But the stats show that the richer they become, the smaller percentage they get um, to the church. In 1968, the average church member gave 3.1%. It's now about 2.6%. As we got richer, we gave less. One can see a related problem in another area. 
examine the public uh, agenda of prominent evangelical political movements and coalitions. Virtually never does justice for the poor appear as an area of significant concern and effort. I'm afraid I'm going to need a glass of water. Uh, Thank you. (coughs) American Christians live in the richest um, uh, nation on earth um, and enjoy a very major high standard of living. Thank you. (coughs) But the World Bank reports that 1.2 1.2 billion people in the world try to live on $1.25 a day. The Ronsvalls point out that if Christians just tithed, they would have another $150 billion every year to use for evangelism and for empowering the poor. Or take the area of sexual disobedience. A story in the New York Times reported on the fact that the census data showed that during the 1990s, the number of unmarried couples living together jumped a lot more in the Bible Belt, where a higher percentage of the people are evangelicals, than in the nation as a whole. In the nation as a whole, it was 72%, but in Oklahoma, very evangelical area, 97%, Arkansas, 125%, and so on. In one of his polls, Barna found that cohabitation, living with a member of the opposite sex without marriage, is only a little better among born-again adults than the average population. Extramarital sex, even in the case of married persons having sex with someone other than their spouse, 13% of traditional evangelicals say that's okay and 19% of non-traditional evangelicals. The traditional evangelicals are serious and go to church regularly. The non-traditional you know, have the right doctrines theoretically, but they don't go to church as often. So the traditional evangelicals, um, 13% say um, um, uh, having sex with someone other than one's spouse is, is fine. Or racism. There uh, was a poll taken um, of um, American Christians and asking whether or not they would object if a black neighbor moved in next door. And I think that's a fair measure of of racism, whether or not you object to that. Well, the Catholics and the non-evangelical Christians were the least likely to object to black neighbors moving in, just 11%. Mainline Protestants came in next at 16% objecting. Baptists and evangelicals were worst at 17%. And the Southern Baptists were the worst of all at 20%. Or, finally, physical abuse in marriage. More than one study has found that women are more likely to experience physical abuse in traditional marriages, where the husband is dominant, than in egalitarian marriages. Evangelicals disagree, of course, um, on this issue, but it's almost certainly the case that a higher percentage of evangelicals than the general public live in traditional marriages. And in those traditional marriages, wives are more likely uh, to be beaten. There was uh, one important study that found that less than 3% of egalitarian marriages had been beaten by their husbands in the previous year. In the traditional marriages, uh, it was 10.7%. There was a study of the uh, Christian Reformed Church, um, a wonderful American and Canadian too, um, uh, 
broadly evangelical denomination, and they discovered that uh, the frequency of physical and sexual abuse uh, in their denomination was just on par with the rest of the country. Well, uh, that's enough uh, data. To say that there's a crisis of disobedience in the evangelical world today is, I think, to dangerously understate the problem. Born-again Christians divorce at about the same rate as everybody else. Self-centered materialism is seducing evangelicals. Only 6% of born-again Christians tithe. Born-again Christians justify and engage in sexual promiscuity, both premarital sex and adultery, at astonishing rates. Racism is worse, and physical abuse of wives at least as bad in evangelical circles as elsewhere. It seems to me that's a scandalous set of behaviors for people who claim to be born again, who claim to be living Christian lives. Well, let's turn away from those uh, statistics and that scandalous behavior and look at the New Testament. Let's let the glorious call and promise of the New Testament sweep over us that wonderful uh, description of transformation in Christ. Romans 6 declares that in baptism we have been united with Jesus Christ in his death. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too we may live a new life. An old life of self has been crucified with Christ. Paul says it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, Paul implores, but be transformed. And I love the text that was read from 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed. It's a present tense. It's not past tense. It hasn't all been done, but it's ongoing. We are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. 1 John 3.9 says, No one who is born of God will continue in sin. Now, of course, the author of 1 John knows very well that Christians are not perfect. He even says that if we claim to have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But he's equally clear that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. But that's not all. It's not just forgiveness. The gospel of salvation, if it were only forgiveness of sins, as I suggested earlier, it would be a one-way ticket to heaven, and we could live like hell until we got there. But First John says God does more than forgive us. He says he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The New Testament promise that people who come to Christ, repent of their sins, and open their hearts to the Holy Spirit will actually receive the transforming power of the living Christ. And day by day will be changed more and more into Christ's very likeness. That is the promise of the New Testament. It's only when we see the radical contrast between the New Testament promise and the practice of contemporary Christians that we see the full tragedy of the church today. What has gone wrong? Well, this would take books, uh, but just a few comments. It's not enough to condemn what's wrong. We need to, in fact, look to the Lord to ask how we can be different. And I think that uh, cheap grace is really right at the heart of what is the problem. 
Peter Gilquist, who was a leader in Campus Crusade and then switched to the Orthodox Church, did a book called Why We Haven't Changed the World. And he said he was passionate about evangelism. He had engaged in evangelism for a couple decades, and he was fervent about that. But in the early 80s, he concluded that evangelistic activity was both more important in terms of activity than ever in the history of the church, but he realized that it wasn't changing the world. And his conclusion was, the reason is that the church itself has lost its holiness and righteousness. And he says, all the evangelism in the world from a church that is not herself holy and righteous will not be worth a hill of beans in world-changing power. Modern evangelicalism, he concludes, is in a modern Babylonian captivity, and we do not yet know it. I think that it's absolutely true that right at the center of Christian faith is the truth that God longs to forgive prodigal sons and daughters. Thank God that a Holy Redeemer does accept us in spite of our sin. We are justified by faith. But the New Testament doesn't stop there. The New Testament says that we embrace Christ as Lord as well as Savior and that a genuine personal relationship with Him transforms us day by day more and more into His image. And unfortunately, even some of our best theologians um, seem to try to tell us that the center, the most important doctrine of Christian faith is justification by faith alone. For the life of me, I don't see Paul telling us that justification is more important than sanctification. It seems to me he talks about both and says that um, both are important and we ought to say the same thing. I said in the class... I guess over and over again, almost ad nauseum, that um, if we define the gospel just as forgiveness of sins, then uh, one, it's a one-way ticket to heaven, we can live like hell till we get there, and two, we're simply not defining the gospel the way Jesus did, because Jesus said the gospel is the good news um, of the kingdom. And there's a vertical part to that, thank God that us sinners get accepted because Jesus died for us, but there's a horizontal part, and we're supposed to be transformed. And I won't uh, repeat um, all of that. Well, um, let me um, uh, conclude finally by saying that I think the church ought to be ahead of the rest of the world. um, And we can be reassured that the gospel is true. The carpenter from Nazareth did burst from the tomb. He now reigns as Lord of the universe. His promise to transform us into his very likeness uh, is still true. It still stands. The Holy Spirit is still alive and powerful today, radically remaking broken people who unconditionally open their hearts and their lives to his mighty presence. And at any time in history, no matter how bad the current mess, and with some frequency it's been bad, no matter how unfaithful the contemporary church, God stands ready to keep his promises to us. God is eager to do the same mighty deeds today that he has done in the past. All we need to do 
is trust and obey. The Lord we claim to love and worship, I think, stands at the door and knocks. Standing at the door of so sadly unfaithful contemporary Christians. He longs to be truly invited in, but we can't invite only half of him. If today we dare to embrace and surrender to the full biblical Christ, I think he will in our time perform marvelous mighty deeds that will transcend what we dare to hope or ask. He will turn our weeping into joy. He will end the scandal of blatant disobedience among the people who call in his name. May God help us. Amen.